morning, church. What a day. What a day, dear friends. We are in the midst of a new beginning. And we are thankful for it, aren't we? A new beginning brings with it new opportunities, new hopes, new dreams for this church. But a new beginning can also bring with it a feeling of instability, vulnerability, uncertainty. As I have spoken with many of you throughout these past few weeks, I'm finding that many of you are also experiencing new beginnings, big changes in your own lives individually. Many of you are experiencing both the joys and the concerns that come with having a new beginning. How do we begin? This is an important question because our lives can be filled with many beginnings. This can also be a difficult question. What is the right way to begin? Those of you who are in school, when your teacher assigns you an essay or a research paper, some of you may have felt before you have found the beginning, the introduction of the paper to be the hardest part. What words should I use to start this essay? How should I begin? Beginnings can be difficult. But one good way to begin, brothers and sisters, is to go back to basics which is what I have uh, named this series. When we are at a new beginning, with its opportunities and uncertainties, it is good to be reminded of what we already know and to ask ourselves, what are the basic ideas, the simple truths that are the bedrock, the stable building blocks of my life? What are some core principles that would help me to get through all this change in a way that's healthy, what are the basics? In part, this is why I have chosen to preach through 1 John. As I had mentioned before, the church that received this letter, 1 John, was also in the middle of a change, in the middle of a new beginning. But unlike us, they were not getting a new building, as far as I know. Instead, they had just undergone a church split, conflict. False teachers had brought division and confusion. People had left their church, and the church was in a time of uncertainty. They were wondering, how do we know who is teaching the right stuff? So John writes this letter to give them assurance and clarity. In the introduction to this letter, which we looked at about a month ago, John established that his testimony of Jesus, you remember, his testimony is authentic because he had heard and seen and touched Jesus personally. John also revealed in that introduction, the first four verses, that his aim, his purpose for writing this letter to this church is to bring them into joyful fellowship with God and with the true church. 
And John will achieve this aim by reminding them of some basic truths as he does in our sermon text this morning. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 through chapter 2 verse 11. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 through chapter 2 verse 11. As I read, please give your full and reverent attention to the words of God. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have a fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Few things in the world are as basic as light and darkness. Children, children, you know when light was created. Which day was it? the very first day. Now we know that God created all things to show his own glory, to show us what he is like. So it is no accident that on the first day, on day one of creation, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light 
from the darkness. Lesson number one. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So John really is taking us back to the basics. In the midst of the confusion and the uncertainty that the church was facing, John goes back to the simple fact that we have light and we have darkness. There are these two things. Anything, uh, anyone, including false teachers, can claim all sorts of things. We've just read multiple times in our sermon text the words, if we say, if we say, if we say, whoever says, whoever says, anyone can say that they know God and have fellowship with him. But how do you know that you really do have fellowship with God? Well, here's the test that John lays out for us. Do you walk in the light or in the darkness? God is light. Therefore, those who have fellowship with him and with his true church must be in the light. It's simple logic. And it's exactly what we see here in chapter 1, in verses 6 and 7. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John's stated purpose in the introduction to this letter is to bring people into fellowship. And here he is telling us what it means to be in true fellowship with God and his church. To be in fellowship with God and with his church is to be in the light and not in the darkness. So, my friend, are you in the light? You might ask, what does that mean? We're speaking in metaphors here. What does being in the light look like in real life? Well, that's actually what John goes on to explain further on in this passage. John provides three tests, three tests to see if we are in the light or in the darkness. Number one, a doctrinal test, a doctrinal test. Number two, a moral test. And number three, a social test. A doctrinal test, a moral test, and a social test. And we'll see these three kinds of tests over and over again throughout John's letter. The doctrinal test, to see whether we are in the light or in the darkness, has to do with our understanding of sin. What is our understanding of sin? Here in our passage, John parses out wrong views of sin from a correct view of sin. So listen to chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, if we, say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So from these verses, it seems that the false teachers were denying the reality of sin in some way, shape, or form. Bible commentators have different theories about what exactly they were teaching, but it all amounts to one thing. 
the refusal to be identified as a sinner. These false teacher, teachers did not want to admit that they were sinners. And there, there are many like that today in our modern world. We just do it in, in different ways. Because our tendency as human beings is to hide our sins in the darkness. That's our tendency. Jesus said in John 3.20, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. People in the darkness can act as if they've done nothing wrong because their sin, sins cannot be seen in the darkness. It's dark. But when you come into the light, when the light of God's word shines on your life, then you look at yourself and you say, you have to say, oh my, I'm filthy. You confess your sins. That's, that's what's scary and uncomfortable about coming into the light. You are exposed as filthy, as sinful, as dirty. But the good news that we see also in this text is that you are also cleansed when you come into the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, all sin. So at this point, someone might be wondering whether John is giving us license to just go and sin all we want. If it's so simple, I can just confess my sins and then they're all forgiven. Uh, why shall we not sin that grace may abound? Might be the question. So John has to clarify at the beginning of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, John is saying, I'm not telling you to go and sin that grace may abound. All I'm saying is, is that if and when we sin, we have an advocate. We have a propitiation, meaning a sacrifice for our sins, which can restore our fellowship with God. So John mentions Christ's sacrifice for our sins because he wants to comfort us. He wants to encourage us to confess our sins and to draw near to God. But it, this is not to make us think that sin is no big deal. And anyone who thinks that sin is no big deal will certainly fail the next test, the moral test. The moral test. We see the moral test starting in chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How do you know that you are having fellowship with God and are walking in the light? Well, the moral test says if you keep his commandments, then you know him. Now, this is not legalism, okay? This is not moralism, and it's certainly not asking you for perfection in your life. But it is asking for evidence. Because, again, people can claim all sorts of things. Someone told me recently that in India, you will often find statues or images of Jesus right next to uh, statues of Ganesh, Vishnu, 
and other Hindu gods. These people think of Jesus as one God among many gods, and they will tell you, oh yeah, I know Jesus, I worship him too. If they said that to you, what would you, what would you say? You'd probably want to say, oh, I'm not really sure that you know him. He is not okay with this. He said, you shall have no other gods before me. He commanded us not to worship idols. I don't think you, you really know him. So that's why John says in verses 4 and 5, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly, the love of God is perfected. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now Jesus himself kept the law. Every jot and tittle. He obeyed God's commandments perfectly. Which is why verse 1 calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. He was righteous according to God's law. If we really love him, if we love the way that he is, the way that he lived his life, we would naturally also want to live our lives the way that he lived. We won't be able to do this perfectly in our lifetime, of course, but there will be a growing Christ-likeness in our behavior. As chapter 2, verse 6 tells us, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's the moral test. Then we come to the social test. John had been talking about commandments in the plural, commandments. But now he begins talking about a commandment in the singular. And it becomes clear that he is talking about the command to love. Love is the sum of the whole law. So Paul says in Romans chapter 13, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the sum of the law. According to John, this command to love others is both old and new old and new he says in chapter 2 verses 7 and 8 beloved i am writing to you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had from the beginning the old commandment is the word that you have heard at the same time it is a new commandment that i am writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The command to love is as old as humanity itself. When God created Adam, when God made Adam in his own image, he already put in Adam's heart the moral law, a conscience. So that Adam knew from the very beginning, the moment he was created, that he ought to love others. But how is this also a new commandment? How is it new? It is a new commandment, John says, because the true light is already shining. The true light has come, by which John means that 
Christ, the light of the world, has come into the world and shed new light on what it means to love others. Before Christ came, before Jesus came, there was a lot of talk about love. But no human being could really, truly reach that ideal. People talk about the ideal love. No one could reach it. But when Christ came, there was a revelation. He showed us what ideal, perfect love looks like. And that gives a whole new meaning to this commandment. Now that God has humbled himself and lovingly laid down his life for his enemies, we really have much less excuse not to love each other. So John makes love a test of whether or not we are truly in the light. As we see in verses 9 through 11, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So that's the social test. To sum it up, how do we know we are in the light and not in the darkness? Three tests. The doctrinal test. The doctrinal test. Do you confess your sin depending on Christ's righteousness. The moral test, do you live a Christ-like life according to God's commandments? The social test, do you love your brother and sister in Christ? So these tests will help us to know if we are in the light, in fellowship with God. These can also help us to grow in our fellowship with God, because nobody, I'm sure, will say, can say, a hundred percent perfect yes to each of these questions. If you did that, that would be the same as saying that you have no sin, in which case you fail the first test. We have to keep growing. We have to keep growing in all three of these areas. We have to keep coming into the light. But it was important for John to lay these things out for that church, because false teachers had come and tried to set up their own standards and criteria, their own tests for what it means to be a believer. So John says, no, no, no. It's not so complicated. It's really quite simple. God is light. Are you in the light? That's it. So now let's think and meditate a little more on this this beautiful truth about our God. Our God is light. One of the challenges that comes with trying to talk about this statement, God is light, is that it is so full and rich in meaning that it is hard to know where to begin and where to end. One commentator, John Stott, he says this, of the statements of the essential being of God, none is more comprehensive than God is light. So if we went through the whole Bible and we looked at each time, each time the Bible uses the imagery of light to say something about who God is, we will find 
that it uses light to talk about many of God's attributes, of God's qualities, His characteristics. Light has been used in Scripture to represent, and here's the list, God's holiness, God's glory and majesty, His life-giving nature, the simplicity and purity of His essence, His unchangeability, His truth, His penetrating wisdom and knowledge of all things, His sincerity, His power, His self-revealing nature, His moral perfection, His transcendence, His warmth, His perfect peace and serenity, His justice, His joy. I could go on. All these things are included in the idea that God is light. Truly, He is worthy of all praise. He is beautiful beyond description. He is light. That is your God, dear church. And what's even more amazing is that light came into our world and walked on two human legs. After the fall of Adam and Eve, our world was plunged into deep darkness. For a long time in human history, it was nighttime. It was dark. It was black. And God gave some light to his people, to Abraham, to Moses, to David. But it was more like the light of the moon and the light of the stars. They help you to see at night, but they don't take away the night. But when Christ came, it was like the rising of the sun. It was the dawning of daytime in human history. The night is far gone, said Paul. The day is at hand. Romans 13, 12. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, a prophecy about the coming of Christ, says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then this prophecy is quoted later in Matthew 4, when Jesus began his preaching ministry. So that's why John says in our passage this morning, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Christian, do you know what era of human history you live in? You live in the era of daylight. Because Christ has come. The Son of Righteousness has arisen over the world with healing in its rays. That's the time we live in. And that should give us a lot of hope. So what should we do knowing that it is now daytime? Paul says, cast off the works of darkness. Walk properly as in the daytime. That's what we should do. And I'm sure that each of you has a sense of what are the works of darkness that are in your own lives that you need to cast off. Sometimes the darkness can be quite literal, such as when the only light that you have is the glow from the screen of your device, your phone, your computer. You're hiding in the darkness. We can often hide away and nurse our secret sins making provision for the flesh. But today's passage 
encourages us to come into the light. You are invited, you are welcome to come into the light. And with the three tests, it gives us three practical ways of walking in the light. Number one, confess your sin. This might sound simple and easy, but it's really not, as some of you might know. Even the most spiritually mature saints can often have trouble admitting that they have sinned. Sure, it's easy to confess, I'm a sinner, in the abstract. It's much harder to point directly to the particular sins and to say, this is how I have sinned. I have witnessed some godly men, some knowledgeable, loving, honorable people who stopped being friends with each other and were not able to reconcile in Christ because no one wants to admit that they had sinned in any way. This is what I have seen. Everyone wants to hear the confession from the other person. Very few people want to be the one to make the confession. So here's a question for you. When was the last time you genuinely apologized to someone in your life? When was the last time? I don't mean when you bump into someone on the street and you say, I'm sorry. I mean when you truly recognize that you have wronged someone with your words, your actions, or even with your heart attitude. We have many opportunities for this, especially with our own, uh, with those who live with us, our parents, our children, our spouse. When was the last time you really softened your heart and said to someone else, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I should not have done that. I should not have said that. Please forgive me. When we do this, we are living in the light. We are not hiding in the darkness, pretending that we have not sinned. Now I know that confession of sin is made first and foremost to God. That is true. But a sign that we are truly confessing our sins to God is that we are also confessing our sins to other people. Number two, obey God's law. If we try to go through this life without giving our attention to the commandments of God, we will stumble in the darkness. A question that is commonly asked, maybe, maybe especially by younger people, is, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? I often want to tell them, it's written in the Ten Commandments. That's God's will for you. I don't say that. I just, I just think it. I, I, know, I know what they want to know is what profession they should go into and whom they should marry, that kind of a thing. But I really believe the promise of Jesus that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. I believe it's usually the case that if you pay attention to the obvious stuff, like keeping God's commandments, then the less obvious stuff becomes clearer as well. So if you feel like you need guidance in your life, if you want to see the way ahead clearly, then come and walk in the light. And the psalmist says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. God's commandments give us 
God's light. Obey God's law. And this leads us very naturally to number three, love one another. Love one another. Love is the fulfillment of the law. When we are walking in love, we are walking in light because the God who is love is the God who is light. And we've seen how the coming of Christ made this a new commandment. The true light has dawned on this world. And we, have, we now have such a clear picture, brothers and sisters, of what love is as we look to the one who left his ultimate comfort zone of heaven. That's the ultimate comfort zone. You can't get better than that. He left. He became a small embryo in the womb of Mary. He was born into lowly circumstances. He served those whom he created, endured all kinds of sufferings, and gave himself up as a propitiation a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. That's love. That's love. And that's what Christ calls us to. He said to his disciples, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. A high calling. And I must say, I have seen this love at work, especially this past month. I'm encouraged to see that in how so many of you in order to, to get this new place ready, have come to help. You've given your, your time, your energy um, to clean, to move things. I feel like that is, that is this love in action. It's a love that is self-sacrificing. It comes into the light, into the open, where you can be seen, you can be hurt, you can lose things. It abandons the protection of darkness. There's this quote from uh, Lewis that says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So these are three practical ways that John gives us that he teaches us to walk in the light, confess our sins, obey God's law, and love one another. Basic stuff, but not so easy. But basic, and basic things make for a good beginning. And today we have revisited lesson number one. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So I hope and pray that as we begin meeting here at this new building, we will always be reminded of who we are, that you will always remember who you are. You are children of light, brothers and sisters. You are children of the day. You are a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand. And as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much that Christ has come, that the true light is already shining, and that we get to bask in his glory. Lord, we lift ourselves up to you as a church. We have so many needs. There is so much darkness in us and in our own lives. Help us to draw near to you. Help us to come into the light. We often don't want to, but please bring us closer to you. Help us to cast our fears aside and to walk in the light. Help us as we go back um, to our, our various places in life this week, our workplaces, our homes, our schools, um, where we may often encounter much darkness. Help us to be a light. Help us to walk as Christ walked. Impress these words in our hearts. Help us to worship you always, remembering that you are light and in you is no darkness at all. And we really look forward to the day, Lord, when we will need no light, no lamp, no sun, because Christ will be our light. We really look forward to that day. Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.